My name's Tom. I'm one of the pastors here also. And I just want to thank Indelible Grace Church again. And I'll probably be doing this a lot just for how kind you've been to, to me and my family and my wife. Um, you guys have encouraged us so much spiritually in our lives um, just in this short amount of time. And for that, just so grateful to you as a church, um, as a church body. You um, exemplify loving people well and um, reaching out to them. You've done that to us, so I'm really grateful. So last week I mentioned that for the next times that I'll be preaching, that um, I'm going to take my sermons out of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. It all starts there. Um, And a very, very quick recap from last week, if you weren't here, I talked a bit about how when believers get a little cold or spiritually crusty, or even feeling hopeless sometimes, that the gospel is oftentimes the cure for our hearts because we tend to forget that, Um, at least I do. Um, It's not so intuitive. The gospel is not that intuitive to our hearts. So sometimes we dismiss it thinking the gospel is only for non-believers and not for the church. So I talked about that. Then I covered the preamble to the creation narrative in Genesis 1, starting with the first two verses of Genesis, to remind us that the triune God, Elohim, started all of this, And that person in the Trinity primarily responsible, as we've heard in Colossians 1, as we've been talking about already this morning, Christ is the one who created. Um, And we see he starts things as part of the Trinity, God, uh, and he finishes in Revelation 1, which is one of my first sermons here, I think. Out of Revelation 1, we see Christ in his glorified way. Um, He has, with his righteous right hand... um, put his hands on us as a church, as his people, and he is at the helm. Uh, I talked about that last week, that even though it seems like we're on a crazy bus in this world, that he is driving and he is good. Lastly, in verse 2, we got a sense of God in the Hebrew Bible as one who hovers over even the thought of his creation with um, a sort of mother bird hovering that uh, word hovering, um, that God, before we were able to do anything good or bad or indifferent, that he loved and was hovering over even the thought of us. Like Paul says in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So today, we'll look a little bit at the first part of the creation narrative that ensues right after the preamble, those two verses from last week. Uh, And if you flip your bulletin over, it's, you may have already done that, it's, it's a lot of text this morning. We've, we've read a lot from God's Word today, and I think that is always encouraging. God's Word, even just read uh, by the Spirit's power, brings uh, great things into the life of, of people. So I'm going to let you remain seated for, I usually would, I would typically have you stand for the reading of God's Word, but since it's so many verses, I'm going to let you stay seated. And um, I'm going to actually read verses 1 and 2 again as well because they're short. So this is Genesis chapter 1. Starting at verse 1, I'm going to end um, at 28. So this is God's most holy and infallible word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that there was, the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. Can you imagine the first day? 
And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. In verse 7, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And it was so. That is often going to be in this first chapter. Whatever God says, it is so. I love that. It encourages me. Uh, picking up at verse 8. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I'll stop there for this morning. Thank you. And let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Even just hearing it, reminding us that there were times of quiet where you were speaking, where things were happening and all of it was good. And we're here today because of your goodness and love and because you create. Lord, in these few moments gathered around your word, encourage us with the gospel, with the face of Jesus who is hovering nearby your spirit. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank y'all. 
So imagine, as, as I was reading the, this part of the creation narrative, imagine a world without sin, brokenness, wars, corruption, no need for environmentalists because it was perfectly set. Everything was environmentally exactly the way it needed to be. I just was thinking, I got the privilege of thinking about that this week. And, um, and the quiet, I, I've mentioned already, just the quiet of all of that. The utter goodness of all of that. No death. Only goodness and life. You know, it's, it's why we care about the Lord's return. It's why we care about Christmas, that he was born in the flesh. Because we're hoping for a new heaven and a new earth. That Christ rose from the dead. And he had to live and die so that he might rise again and we might have hope in a new creation one day. Um, last week I didn't mention, as I was opening some of the preaching that I'll be doing out of Genesis, uh, I didn't mention that, that Moses is the author, mostly undisputed by evangelical biblical scholars and the academy. Moses is the author of the Pentateuch. And so I wanted to mention that. he's the Obviously the Lord God is the author of his his scripture, but Moses was the writer. So I also mentioned last Sunday at, as the preamble that I would give you some idea of how do we interpret a creation narrative like this in Genesis 1? Uh, what are some of the things that we can think about in interpreting this? Because it's a little bit controversial and there's a lot of things that I could be saying about it. I'm going to say a couple things and then I want to say a few things about the text that I just read uh, before we take communion together. But in the Presbyterian Church of America, which is part of what this church is affiliated with, Indelible Grace, um, the belief is, interpreting the creation narrative, that God did create all things ex nihilo, out of nothing. So he is God because he can take absolutely nothing and make all that is. Those are the simple, basic things that we believe is true about this text, that God did it ex nihilo with nothing, nothing. And we, we can't do that. We're un, even though created in his image, we are not able to create out of nothing all that there is, only God. Now, in our particular denomination, there are four acceptable biblical views. There was a commission years ago that spent a few years studying all the different ways to interpret this creation narrative. So in our denomination, there are actually four acceptable views. If you're interested in knowing what those views are, ad nauseum with all the details, you can actually go online and download that paper. It's hundreds of pages long, scripture all throughout, all the different views. And they're quite interesting. I was rereading parts of it this week in preparation, just thinking about it. And um, it's amazing to look at Scripture and to look what biblical scholars have pulled together. And biblical scholars who care about God's Word, who love God, who are believers, those views accepted. So if you're interested, if that's kind of your thing, you love to get into those little nooks and crannies and niches, come see me. I would love to have coffee with you and talk about it. We can download the paper together and talk about that position paper put out by our denomination years ago. It's really good stuff. I also mentioned last Sunday that um, one particular author that I, he's a pastor, he's a scholar. I actually sat under him in seminary back in 2000, 1999 and 2000. His name's Jack Collins, Dr. Jack Collins. He's written a book most recently on the first 11 chapters of Genesis because that's really where a lot of the controversy is in those first 11 chapters. 
He went to, I'll just say this about him. He went to MIT, and you're like, well, that's not that impressive. It is to me. Um, He's a seminary professor. He's a linguist. He's a pragmatist. And he's interested in language, uh, primarily its social function. And he goes in, in his book, he goes into a lot of how language is used socially, um, and it's super interesting. But the questions he asks related to Genesis, he asks a bunch of them, and he answers a lot of them. But a few questions that I'm actually going to bring to the, the text today are the questions that Jack Collins asks, two of them. What is this creation narrative in Genesis 1? What is it here to do? That's one of the questions Jack Collins asks. And so we'll ask it today of just these verses that I read, this narrative. And then the follow-up question is, what are the needs of the audience that is listening to or reading this text? So Jack Collins asked those questions. And so first, the ancient Near East for the Hebrew Bible, this narrative, what's the text for in that context in the ancient Near East? Jack Collins answers the question, and I was grateful because I, I didn't want to try to figure out what the answer was. What was the audience need? What was the text for in the ancient Near East? Jack Collins says, and I, I think he's right, they cared about their agriculture because that was how they lived. That's the ancient Near Eastern people. And then also they cared about procreating, that they would have a continuation of the species, that they would continue having children. Those are the two main audience needs of the ancient Near East. So when someone in the ancient Near East, uh, a Hebrew perhaps, would read the Genesis narrative by Moses, God's word, their need would be to know that God would care for them through agriculture and what they were planting and how they would live their lives, procreating and continuing on with children. They needed to know that God could do those things. They had those expectations of God. And of course, Genesis 1 meets those. I mean, they would, in that time, read or hear the picturality of what God did, and they would have hope that God could take care of their crops. He did all of it. He created out of nothing. He, could, he put the sun, the moon, all that God could take care of them, and that he told them to be fruitful and multiply, and he would bless that. So all of the needs in the ancient Near East would be met by this text. The text would do its purpose would accomplish its purpose. But this is the living word of God. It's active even now. We're listeners. We're the audience now. We're not ancient Near Eastern people. So what is our audience need for the created, the creation narrative? What is your, as the audience, as the listener, I just read scripture, this narrative, what is our audience need? Is it agriculture? Is it procreation? Yes, perhaps, on some level, I, I had to think about this for myself. So, and you can think about it for yourself. What what do you need? What do you need this text to do for you? Uh, I need to know from the creation narrative, this text. I need to have, feel hope. That's that was an audience need that I felt immediately. So I need hope. Uh, I need to know that God is benevolent, that he's good, that he, these are mine, so you can try to, I'm just saying what mine are, so you can think about what yours might be. These are my audience needs, that he's present, that God sees, that God knows that he cares, that he's doing something about everything, that he's doing something about everything. 
that he can explain himself, that he can show himself, that he can transform us, that he can change our situations. You know, just thinking about my audience, I mean, those that was my laundry list of audience needs. I don't know what yours might be, but just thinking about those things, I was like, wow, I expect a lot out of God. I expect him to do so much. Beyond my crops and my kids, I have a lot of expectations, and maybe you do too. So I think the creation narrative, based on some of the things that I read from our position papers as a denomination, reading Jack Collins, who's a scholar, a pastor, and thinking of my own audience needs, I think this creation narrative that I was reading earlier is meant to tell us that God is up for all the expectations that you can possibly muster in your heart and mind as a human being today, sitting here in Indelible Grace Church. And as you look, I had the privilege to live my second year of marriage right at the foot of the Alps in Switzerland. I know. Feel sorry for me, right? And I remember opening my bedroom windows to the Alps every day for a year. And the purpose of the Alps in Switzerland is for me to say, God, I have so many expectations for you. And as I look at the Alps, I think you're up to it. <laughs> I mean, as I look at the expanse of your creation, the, these mountains, whatever I'm thinking that you can't handle, you can. You obviously can handle it. Creation is meant to draw us to see that the God of the universe is up for whatever you expect of him. So the gospel from this part of scripture, the creation narrative, means that every time we look at, as delineated by this text, as we look at the sun, the moon, the stars, the beauty of plants, the intricacy of our, in, our ecosystem, how the human body, the ten systems, work to make up our biology, all of these, all the dimensions are meant to make us, as human people, look to see Christ in all his fullness. All of, all of what we see today, even as we look at one another in this room, is meant to cause it, the singing, the smells, the sounds, the tastes, as we partake even of communion together. It's meant to bring us home. Creation will stand in judgment if we refuse to come home to Christ. So that's our audience need. I was trying to unpack a little for myself. Hopefully you were thinking what your audience need is. I'm thinking this text is meant to draw us back to, to Christ. So let's think for just a few moments. The sun. What is it about the sun that would draw us to think about Christ in some new way? I've already heard people talking about the sun today in our prayer time this morning. At 10 a.m. we were meeting for prayer and I don't know the sun came up. I think it's already been mentioned, but it's in this text here. A few facts about the sun. I didn't know. I was trying to find some that I didn't really know before. And one of them was the sun can hold 1.3 million earths in it. You know, that's how large it is. 1.3 million of the earths can fit into the sun, according to scientists. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to even come close. I mean, I'm sure there's a mathematical way to come about all that. But the sun in itself, its largeness, its vastness, its utter 
that is how Christ needs, that sort of speechlessness that comes when you think about 1.3 million earths fitting into the size of something else, the awe of that, the wonderment of that, the sort of I'm speechless, like when I read that fact online, I was like, that is what Christ should bring to our hearts. It's a speechless way of thinking, obviously, God, the Lord Christ can handle whatever I've got going on. 1.3 million earths can fit in the sun that he created for us to rule the day. So as the sun rules the day, you're meant to say, Christ is ruling my day. I'm meant to see that. The sun is meant to draw us back to him, his, his unfathomableness, his holiness, the sight, his warmth. When you're warmed by the sun, which I've been cold all morning, and I want to go stand out where some people are standing right now in the sun and be warmed by that. When the warmth of the sun hits your body and you need that warmth, it is meant to, to make you think of the warmth of the Savior who by the gospel has offered you his, his warm love and grace. Even when your heart is cold and crusty and hopeless. That's your audience need. That's my audience need for the creation text. What about the moon? A few facts about the moon. Is it okay if I share a few facts about the moon? The pull of the moon's gravity on the earth holds our planet in its place. Really? I didn't know that. I didn't know that the moon actually has, I mean, I know it's important and there's silly movies even out this year about the moon, you know, falling to the earth. It's called Moonfall, Halle Berry's in it, you know. I mean, it's so silly, right? But it's crazy. Without the moon stabilizing the tilt of the earth, it's possible that the earth's tilt could wildly go in a different way that would bring about the ice age. So we need the moon so much. And I, in fact, last night as I was going to bed, um, where I'm staying, where, where I'm living when I'm down in Castro Valley during the week, um, is with friends. And I was lying in bed and I was thinking about this text and wondering, how in the world am I going to talk anything useful? And the moon was right there in the window. I, I opened my eyes and the moon was right there. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, the moon's there to remind me, Christ is over our day, he's over our nights, and the stars, and the stars as well. You know, Revelation 1 talks about how Jesus holds the stars in his hands. You know, the stars, when we see them at night, according to what scientists are telling us, they've already burned out. We're seeing the light from what's been billions of light years away, and now we're just seeing it's the light of these these bodies. And and that's an amazing thought. And here today, I know this seems like a little, maybe it's cheesy, but we're sitting here today because of what Christ did, not only in creation at the beginning of time, but his person, his work, his coming at Christmas, his coming. Thousands, I mean, that light, we're now getting the light of that now. Like, not, not a star that's burned out, but a star that is giving us his light and his hope, even now. Like, we're sitting here as a church for what Christ did 2,000 years ago, receiving that light in the gospel. So, I could say more, the, the ocean's teeming with life and mystery. How many of you have been by an ocean and you've made a major decision in your life? Like, the ocean has 
I mean, I'm just thinking of, of some people I know and even myself. When I get near the ocean, I tend to just start praying and I start thinking about my life in ways that I haven't before. Maybe you live in the Bay Area and you're used to being around, you know, a sea or a bay. But I, I'm from Alabama and I lived up in the northern part, so I'd have to drive four hours down to see the Gulf. And every time I would do that, which was pretty often in my childhood, we would go down, I would stand on the beach and look at the ocean and I, I could not think of anything but God. I mean, that's where he led me. The oceans are meant in all of its mysteries and chaos and all its depth, literally its depth. Christ, he, he's, he's speaking as the waves lap upon the shore. It's him. It's him. Looking at the ocean must bring us to our knees, the chaos, the mystery, the literal depth, like I said, the beauty. And lastly, I'll just highlight, because there's so many things to, to think about, but all of this creation is meant to draw us into the face of the Lord Jesus. But what about humans? All right, so the pinnacle of all of this, yeah, the ocean, that's great, the sun, 1.3 million earths can fit in it, the moon keeping our earth from tilting a different way. All that's amazing, and all of that vast amazingness brings us to Christ, but the pinnacle is you and me, humans, people. When you look at another person, and I looked at a lot of people yesterday because there was some parade of lights going through Castro Valley that was completely jamming up the entire city. It was not nice. I was just trying to go to Safeway. I was just trying to get a French bread, you know, because they promise it's warm or you get it free at Safeway. And I looked at human people and I thought, please, could you not be here? Please, could you not be here? Right? Anybody else? Now, you probably took your families to the, the I mean, and I hope you did. Um, but... As you think of human pers- the human person, if you're, um, I almost was a biology major in college because I am fascinated by the systems of the body. I think, um, I think it's amazing that the pituitary gland, without it, we just fall over dead. Like, and scientists, yeah, they can say, well, it's because of this hormone and that. But the pituitary gland does things, and it's so tiny. Without it, we can't exist. It's just it's mind-boggling to me. And you have them. You, you have a pituitary gland. And it's doing things right now that are trying to keep you awake right now. It's trying to keep you sitting up. Whenever you look at a human person, you are meant to revel in the glory of God and think about the grace of Jesus. Every human person, as crowded as Parking is limited. All of it is meant to be pushing us toward Christ, the gospel. So I don't know what humans are in your life right now, but they're there to, to remind you of Jesus. Like, well, my coworkers, you haven't met them. I know I haven't. They're meant to be drawing you back to Christ and his goodness, his vastness, his sunness, his moonness, his starness, his humanness. His godness. So I hope today, as you leave church, 
that as you think of the intricacies of everything that you're going to see today, because if human people are walking around you, there are crazy, intricate things happening. That Christ is involved, that he is present, that he permeates all of our lives. And he is screaming at us. He's whispering at us. He's, he's present, reminding us of his love. And wanting us to do the same to other human persons around us. And just reminding you of verse 28. And God blessed them. He blessed all that he made. And he blessed men and women to go and be fruitful and multiply. And I believe that fruitfulness and multiplication is definitely procreation, but it's also as we love, as we see people around us, hurrying and scurrying that we would love them in whatever that might look like in the moment. And that we would then be reminded of the goodness of Christ. Would you please pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us how vast, how beautiful, how good you are, and how amazing that you could create out of nothing. Would you please, God, in these moments as we partake of the Lord's Supper, would you uh, press your face towards us in a way that we need this morning as audience need, that we're, we're your audience, we're your body, and we need you today. Hear our prayers. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen.